The next session we're going to be talking about regulatory reform, um, trying to hone in on some of the key issues that we're faced with both in the United States as well as in Europe. And uh, to open the session, we're very lucky to have uh, Ian Hudson, who's the chief executive of MHRA. And what I asked him to talk about is sort of actually uh, a little bit challenging, I think. It's can regulators facilitate innovation while balancing the responsibility of patient safety? And I think this is actually a very, very big question to us. So, Ian, if you don't mind taking over, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk to this very important meeting. So uh, my, my question then is, can regulators facilitate innovation whilst balancing responsibilities for patient safety? I thought I'd start by saying just a little bit more about the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, where I work. We are an agency of three centres now. We uh, merged with the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control last year. And this is an institute of some 300 scientists with expertise in, in, in biological biotech products uh, that produce, this institute produces something like 90% of the world's standards in biological medicines. Uh, it also is an official medicines control laboratory uh, and does a large amount of research, high-quality research in the, in the um, biological biotech area. We've also got as a centre within the MHRA the Clinical Practice Research Data Link. We heard about this earlier this morning. This has anonymised healthcare uh, records, primary care records, and also linked to, uh, can be linked to secondary care uh, records and is a fantastic tool for research purposes. Uh, a large number of studies, this has emerged out of GPRD, the General Practice Research uh, Database, uh, evolved into Clinical Practice Research Data Link and actually has got a very good track record over many, many years of, of being a uh, very valuable tool for things like pharmacoepidemiological studies with very many uh, publications. Increasingly looking to the future, it is a tool that can be used for uh, running clinical trials, uh, simple clinical trials, randomization of the, uh, for, for certain types of trials, uh, and then recording the data uh, through the clinical practice research data link. So I think going forward, it will be a very, very useful tool uh, for clinical research, uh, clinical trials, as, as well as the pharmacoepidemiological type uh, studies. We've also got the regulatory centre within MHRA. Uh, we regulate medicines, devices, also blood banks. We've also got the British Pharmacopoeia uh, in the agency as well. So we have a broad range of responsibilities, but a lot of this actually includes research uh, and, and um, innovation, uh, not just simple regulation. So what is the MHR's role in relation to devices? Now, I'm focusing primarily on devices here, but a lot of the discussion earlier on this morning actually relates to products that are probably more medicines than devices, although there may be an ancillary device component used to deliver the medicine. Um, we are involved in a lot of discussions and adjudicating on borderline. Uh, is it a medicine? Is it a device? Is it neither? What is it? 
Uh, and this is actually an ever-increasingly complicated area, particularly uh, biotechnology-derived products that may be acting as a scaffold with some pharmacological action. What type of product is it? And, of course, that determines its regulatory route and, and to some extent, the uh, requirements for progressing it. So that is a, a, an area that uh, is uh, increasingly complicated, uh, and we're spending more and more time on it. Clinical trials, if you want to do a clinical trial or a clinical investigation on a device or a medicine, you've got to get regulatory approval and we authorize, authorize trials. The um, regulatory system for devices involves notified bodies uh, and the competent authorities, MHRA being the competent authority. Uh, we have oversight of the notified bodies within the UK. We're involved in inspecting the notified bodies and certification of the notified bodies. Uh, and we've recently had implementing legislation to uh, allow joint inspection of the notified bodies. So two member states and the commission do the uh, inspection. That strengthened the uh, inspection of the notified bodies. We're also involved in surveillance, vigilance and adverse incidents. We get something like 13,500 uh, adverse incident reports reported to the agency each year. We issue something of the order rate of 80 device alerts uh, each year. Um, and we are also involved in enforcement and, and surveying for counterfeits and taking action uh, for counterfeits or people breaking the uh, legislation uh, relating to devices and, me and medicines, of course. Now, what about the regulatory environment for devices? And, and um, I, I come from a much more of a medicines regulatory background than the devices one, but I actually think the regulatory environment for devices actually is a, a very competitive environment and generally is risk proportionate and, and generally is supportive of innovation. Of course, we have the role of the notified bodies and the competent authorities. The notified bodies are much more involved in the conformity evaluation, uh, assuring the CE marking, uh, also looking at the post-marketing uh, clinical plans uh, and uh, uh, reviewing the CE marking uh, three to five years out whereas the competent authorities are more involved in the later stages, surveillance in the marketplace, oversight of the uh, notified bodies, uh, and, of course, communicating on safety issues as, as well. So it's a complicated environment with uh, more players in it, but actually I think it is a, a, an environment that generally is supportive of, of uh, innovation. But I think there's no doubt there is uh, some requirement to strengthen the framework uh, and revise it somewhat, I think the areas that need strengthening oversight of the notified bodies, and that's to some extent started to happen with the recent implementing act that allows the joint audit of the notified bodies. Also, I think the way we operate within Europe, the collaboration within Europe, we have a common European legislative platform that I think we can collaborate further at a European level. Also, the way we interact with the healthcare community uh, needs to be strengthened as, as well. Uh, so I think there's a number of areas that do require uh, some strengthening. We'll come back to some of the proposed changes uh, shortly. Um, I think the question put to me is, can regulators support innovation and protect safety? I think my short answer to this question is, absolutely. We absolutely must ensure safe innovation happens and do our utmost to help facilitate safe innovation. Um, if we, the, the reason behind that is I think we all know that innovation will drive healthcare gains and actually what we all want to see are healthcare gains coming out at the end of this and it's only through innovation that we'll actually see these, these healthcare gains.
And I also think it's very important that regulators, industry, healthcare community, academia work together to uh, be prepared for the products of the future and to look at the issues that, as, as they arise and make sure we are all ready for the uh, innovation that, 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 that comes along. Now, regulators, of course, have to balance everything, and uh, what we all want, of course, are new uh, devices, uh, new products, uh, because they show all the innovation that we get. On the other hand, we don't want to see any risk of damage to patients and users uh, as, as a consequence of the use of new devices or, indeed, medicines. If regulation becomes a little bit too relaxed, then, of course, you get rapid access to innovative new products, lower costs, more innovation, potentially more benefit. But on the other hand, the risk there is uh, you'll see a greater risk to patients, uh, more adverse incidents, more problems, uh, products having to be withdrawn, etc. On the other hand, if we're too cautious, things go in the other direction. We will end up delaying innovation reaching patients. We'll end up putting costs up. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, the benefit, if there is one, would be less adverse incidents, but at a cost of less products and, and, and more expensive products. So it's all about getting the right balance. I think we've also got to recognize that what we actually know about a product evolves, of course, during the life cycle of that product. And we only know a certain amount of information about the efficacy and safety or effectiveness uh, of a product prior to it being put on the market. Uh, and a lot more information becomes available when a product is out there uh, on the market being used much more widely outside any tightly controlled uh, situation. And the debate really is at what point should this happen? Should it be shifted to the left? Should it be shifted to the right? But actually, collecting data here, and in some cases this will go up very rapidly, very quickly, other cases very slowly, um, but it actually sometimes takes even quite a few years before you get robust safety information in the marketplace. Uh, I think uh, National Joint Registry, which I think has been a, a, a very big success, but it's several years before we actually get good safety information and really know uh, uh, the, 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 uh, about products uh, from that sort of source. Also, I'd like just to take this opportunity of stressing that patient safety is very much a team team game. Everyone must be involved in this. Everyone must be involved in reporting this. So patients, of course, they're the ones who receive uh, the devices, use the devices, healthcare professionals involved in, in using them as well, the regulators, industry, uh, internationally as well. And we do have regular teleconferences with our European counterparts to talk to each other about uh, emerging issues. This is one of the things that's been fairly recently instigated and, and actually is working well. But everyone must play a role in relation to safety devices in the, in the marketplace. What can we do to support innovation as a regulator? Well, actually, I think there's a lot we can do and a lot we do do. Um, we opened an innovation office last year within the MHRA. The purpose behind this was to support those bringing innovative products forward. Uh, many of the people involved really didn't have much experience of the regulatory framework, so it's to, to guide them through in terms of what's necessary to be done. Uh, how can we hold their hand in terms of understanding what needs to be done? And, and I think we've had some really quite interesting products through, through there. 
we also need to be clear about our expectations in terms of the requirements, whether it be guidance, whether it be regulation, be very clear what's expected of people, and be available to talk to people. We have a large number of advice meetings each year as an agency, some 250 on the medicine side, perhaps a little less so on the devices side, where we sit down round a table and talk about how people are developing products, uh, what they need to do. Uh, and the company will put forward, or maybe as an academic community will put forward their proposals and we'll discuss them. We may involve external experts in that discussion as well. Uh, but, but really to get to a composition of what needs to happen to be able to progress the, the, the compound or, or, or the product. We also have helplines. We have, uh, and, and informal advice um, procedures, our clinical trials unit uh, spent a lot of time answering queries. We've uh, helped a lot of people in the advanced therapy area progress into clinical trials. We've seen quite a number of trials in this area in the UK uh, over recent years. Uh, we have uh, other regulatory, we've got regulatory information service with uh, something like 14,000, 15,000 queries each month to come in and in, in, uh, just asking about how you do things or, or um, what's required for this. So, so we put a lot of effort into providing advice to be able to support people developing products. We also uh, put in place on the medicine side a joint advice between the MHRA and NICE uh, to be able to offer applicants advice on not only what they need to do to get regulatory approval for, for, for medicines, but also to meet the needs of the um, uh, healthcare technology <coughs> assessment and, and NICE. Now, I've been very surprised that the actual uptake of that has been very limited. Uh, and um, I, I've never really understood why. There's, a little, there's an initiative happening at the European Medicines Agency as well. And again, the uptake has not been huge. And... I've never really understood why people are not taking up these opportunities. Similarly, we do still, still see applicants coming forward with a, uh, an application at the end of the development process who've not taken any advice along the way, or maybe they've been to the FDA and taken advice from the FDA, and then they've come to Europe, and Europe has said, actually, that doesn't work here because your comparator's not the right one because that's not used in Europe. Uh, it's not relevant in Europe. So there is an element of um, people not taking the facilities that are available for regulators to help them with their development program. Um, and, and I think it's very important that people involved in developing new products do come and talk to regulators uh, and, and get advice as they go along. I've also been concerned on occasion that people, and I'm um, sorry to the big companies, but I've heard it said from some of the bigger companies, um, all the regulators won't like that. Uh, and, and there's a certain conservatism sometimes with the regulatory people in, in big companies, where actually the regulators have got a much more open mind and are happy to discuss the science and the developments. Uh, and please come and talk to us and don't just second guess us. Um, let's, let's have that debate. Uh, and, and, and let's uh, reach a, um, a position where uh, we can progress compounds because we do want to see them, them progressed. Um, also in our uh, assessment of whether it's a trial application or a new product application on the medicine side or, or, or whether it's an issue in the marketplace, I think we do try to take as balanced a view as we possibly can uh, looking at the risks, but also looking at the benefits and looking at the context. And, of course, no product, whether it's a medicine or device, is, is without any risk at all, and it's got to be contextualised by the, uh, the, the disease and, 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 and the uh, alternative treatments, etc. 
Now, one of the, I, I mentioned earlier on that I thought there is a need for some improvements in the regulatory system for devices, and there are changes uh, underway. The devices directives are under renegotiation in Europe. Um, they, they, there will be some changes. Uh, I think what we'll see emerging, and the, the, the negotiations haven't completed yet, but I think what we'll see emerging is enhanced oversight of the notified bodies across Europe so that they uh, have the resources and have the appropriate skills, etc., to be able to do the tasks that they are uh, assigned to do. We'll also, uh, I think, see more prescriptive rules on the levels of clinical evidence, and in some cases, uh, device-specific guidance will be uh, 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 developed to say what you need to do if you've got such and such a device. Um, across the whole sector, there's an ever-increasing demands on transparency, and I think this will be reflected uh, in the um, uh, regulations when they're eventually uh, agreed. Uh, and so there'll be a summary of clinical evidence for every device uh, on the market, and I think, I think the current proposals are there'll be an EU database for that, and there'll be uh, information on the clinical evidence put onto that database at the time of the uh, approval or putting on the market of that device. And there'll be improved post-marketing surveillance. There's already a, a requirement for a post-marketing uh, plan, clinical plan, but I think this will be strengthened uh, as, as well as part of the revised regulations in due course. Just wanted to say a little bit for a moment or two, and in, in the current environment, some of the risks and challenges we face whilst we're thinking about uh, innovation, uh, supporting innovation. Uh, I think one of the challenges we all face in these times of austerity is to make sure we have sufficient resource to be able to have an appropriate regulatory regime and contribute to some of the international discussions and contribute to all the standards work, etc., that sets the, the, the framework. Uh, and so I think we have to make sure that these are in place despite the um, austerity that we all face. I think we also have to recognize that we're in a very complicated healthcare environment, increasingly complicated healthcare environment, one that's rapidly changing. And I think um, we have to also recognize that a lot of the device area, uh, that there's an element of the device itself, but also there's the user as well. And as the environment gets more complicated, this sometimes gets a, a little more uh, complicated too. We're seeing uh, changing in the way c communication happens, the days of a putting something on a website and that's it, have long gone. Uh, we have, I think, within the agency something like five Twitter feeds. Uh, we have to be innovative in the way we communicate, but we also have to be innovative in the way that we receive information uh, and, uh, about problems uh, on devices as well. And we're seeing uh, increasingly complex products out there, and um, uh, we need to bring in more and more expertise to be able to look at those products um, increasing, I mentioned at the beginning, our, our merger last year with the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control. Well, in fact, the biological expertise there is ever increasingly brought into the evaluation of both medicines and devices. Uh, people on the medicines and devices side are working very closely together on certain types of products. Uh, we also have an extensive network of advisors, and we're currently looking at, uh, at that and how to uh, maximize our use of external expertise. Uh, it's an ever more complicated world where we need to make sure that we can access the right expertise to be able to address the, the, the problems that uh, we face. So in conclusion, uh, I, I do believe that the regulatory system must 
and indeed does allow safe innovation to proceed. Uh, and this is, of course, for everyone's benefit, for the benefit of public health. And there are multiple ways in which regulators do support innovation. Not all of those are taken up by uh, some people, but there are multiple ways that we can do that. I do think the regulate, device regulator environment does support innovation, but I do think it requires some degree of change, but those uh, changes are underway in the revision of the uh, regulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. So if you want to join us back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just ask a couple questions actually to our uh, industry partners on the uh, panel, uh, if, if you will. So one of the, the key factors, I think, is one of time. So time to approval of a, um, a new study or evaluation of a new study. So um, I'll start with you, Janet. Give us your per perception of the UK in terms of innovation. Is this a country that you would come to first in evaluation of a new product or a new device? So to start off, absolutely, we try to include the UK in our strategic partnership for clinical trials. One of the comments I like to make, though, from Boston Scientific, that's who I'm employed by, is that we've seen an increasing uh, higher regulatory hurdle and burden within the UK. Over the last two clinical programs I've had the pleasure of running, unfortunately, I've had to pull back and not have sites in the UK due to either increased statistical requirements outside of FDA and other European countries, along with some commercially uh, post-market studies where commercially available CE marked, however, the UK determined that they would not like to run the safety and efficacy trial with us. So actually, from our viewpoint, we've actually seen an increased regulatory hurdle through the UK and having them included in our plans. Okay, great. Paulina, do you, do you have any comments? Um, I just have a personal experience uh, with Keystone Heart that I uh, work for right now. Uh, with our device, is a deflector. And uh, I think... Uh, MSAR uh, delayed the approval of the product probably six to eight months because it's a deflector, so it's a device, but it's heparin coated. So in UK, it was seen as a drug as well. So it had to go through two processes. And it's a startup company with about 20 people. It cost to run the company about half a million dollars per month. So it was a very, very costly delay uh, to a small startup company. Alexandra, I'd like to, I guess I'd like to ask the question back to, to Ian. Um, we try to be proactive on our communications. I would, I would try to question the fact that I like the approach that Europe would take a common uh, approach to industry for what they would require, whether it be post-market. We're all for that. I think there's been increased requirements around post-market surveillance. And I think that only aids the, the, the outcomes for the patient to understand how the, the risk-benefit actually is uh, experiencing a device. But I'd be curious about the increased scrutiny around some of the, the statistical requirements in the UK versus the rest of, of CE. In particular, you know, when we go to large markets like Germany, Italy, Spain, France, and here, they're, they're, they're the top five, um, we're finding that the UK is putting restrictions or higher hurdles than any of the other four countries. So I'd love to hear feedback on that because, quite frankly, earlier in the morning, it's a, it's a wonderful place to run clinical research. Historically with Boston, I've been with them 10 years. The UK has been a great partner in bringing commercial products here for us as an industry partner. Um, however, in the last two years, 
We've marked sites for, in the UK to, to uh, participate in clinical research. They've got the infrastructure. They can identify patients. And I'd ask for my industry partners in the audience as well to comment. However, I've had to draw back from it. So I'd be curious, is the UK looking externally, see that are they actually seeing less clinical research here versus their other European colleagues? And is there something we can do in partnership with them, with MHRA, to actually stop that phenomenon? Because quite frankly, I'd love to see trials placed here more often. Perhaps I can uh, <coughs> respond to, to some of these points. Um, first of all, I, I, we're talking a device, not a medicine, I assume, Correct. in, in, yeah. in right. relation to this. I wasn't aware of any increased requirements uh, in the UK in relation to other countries, and I'd not heard this elsewhere, and so far as I was aware, um, we were uh, operating to a common set of standards. I'll happily look into the specifics, but I certainly wasn't aware of this, and I don't think we've seen any significant drop-off in, in, in this area. More broadly, in the medicine side and the clinical trials area, again, there had been some decrease, uh, but that's across Europe, and that's stabilized out, really, over recent years. And, and uh, uh, I think there's a lot of things that have happened in the UK in relation to making a much more risk proportionate regulator regime that's subsequently gone into the clinical trials regulation that actually has been innovative in the UK to drive some of the changes in the European legislation to improve the environment for clinical trials. So. Um, uh, I, I wasn't so aware of that, and let, let me look into that, and I, I can look at it. But, but there's no, there's been no deliberate wish to change in the in the UK. No, I think we're very much uh, consistent with uh, other countries. Um, your your post-marketing study uh, was this? Uh, people didn't want to run it, or was this was this was presumably a notified body request? Was this notified body request? Right. We had a commercially available product, and we'd like to see uh, European colleagues, in particular, it was a drug-eluting stent platform where we like to include Europe, although it's CE marked and commercially available here, it aids other regulatory bodies like FDA, PMDA to include Europe in the, in the USIDE uh, portion of the trial. And um, our particular filing, it was a direct no that at this point the, the product was commercially available. You were changing regulations here in the country. And so it quite frankly limited us from bringing four to five sites out of our hundred into the UK to help participate in a USIDE filing. And we respect the fact to your comment around FDA we may be going directly to FDA first because that is the regulatory body we're trying to seek approval. We already have CE mark. So we're trying to uh, please two different regulatory agencies with the full objective of getting a USIDE approval. So understandably that you may not see everything the FDA does. But it's interesting because other European countries are actually following suit to that requirement. I'd ask for a nod of heads because I've got colleagues in, in the audience and just you know show of hands. Um, have other colleagues of mine felt the increased regulatory burden from the UK versus other European countries? Any show of hands? At show least hands. one. Abbott and B. He's next, Boston. So, and, and it is a concern because, uh, quite frankly, and I know Christian, as we talked at the break, is uh, you do phenomenal clinical research. The quality of the FDA, it's one of the countries that we know we can come in and do any type of inspection and, and find a quality run program, clinical program. So, if, it, if this meeting alone generates the fact that we'd love additional conversation with you to make sure that the technologies are being brought to the UK, I think that's, that would be a great outcome for us in so, industry. So let Can me I get a clinician's perspective, and we'll come back. Do you want to respond to that? Uh, well, okay. I'd like to respond to you. You made a comment that we're not seeing what the FDA is seeing. I'd like to ask you why not. Uh, Surely, are you talking the, about data? The difference, no, actually when it comes to, and I'll talk in particular the programs, the two programs I run most recently in the two years that I, weren't, I was not able to place uh, sites, trial sites in the UK is, 
the uh, statistical scrutiny by which the FDA is requiring and PMDA, because I'm running them simultaneously, versus the UK, there's a higher scrutiny on statistical power as well as p-value significance in our trials versus any other regulatory body. What that means to industry is, um, in particular, the trial I was running would have been an increase in patient size by 80, 80 additional patients. When we're not coming after a CE mark, we can't, from a business perspective, justify that increase in population. Number one, it delays commercial availability in both Japan and the U.S. And second, the purpose really wasn't for CE mark. We already have it. So for us, that was almost a $5 million add to the trial, which, quite frankly, industry was not willing to be able to, to absorb. Okay. okay. Sorry, I'll let you bring in other people. But maybe I can just uh, – the, the principles here, I think, I can't talk about the specifics. I don't know yeah, the specifics. But be open, be transparent. Tell us um, uh, that the FDA, you've agreed, or the FDA requested you to do that. I think that always helps because sometimes we don't get that sort of degree of transparency. It's, oh, do this study, and it's only subsequently find out why people want to do the study. Uh, and people aren't always that transparent. Make sure we do see all the data uh, because, again, sometimes um, things are put to the FDA and they're not put to us, and that can, cannot be acceptable. And involve us in the process earlier. Uh, what I don't think European uh, regulators like is to be told the FDA says we have to do this, therefore this is it. No negotiation. Ignoring Europe. Europe is you know, 500 million people uh, and, and wants, I think, to be involved in the process. Can I also comment on the uh, drug eluting, the um, heparin coated catheter? Oh. Because I, I, I agree the area of combination products is a little more difficult in the sense that the, the process here requires the consultation with a, um, a medicines competent authority for the ancillary medicinal product component, and that uh, unfortunately does sometimes cause a little bit of a problem. Um, I think also the legislation, when it's revised, should help in terms of some of that as well to get the uh, interaction between the medicines competent authorities for an ancillary medicinal product component and the devices, uh, uh, the notified body, a little bit smoother. Uh, but I acknowledge that that particular bit sometimes hasn't been as good as it might be. Okay, Andreas, <clears throat> give us your clinician's perspective. Okay, clinician's perspective uh, to start with. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm an interventional cardiologist. I'm involved in a lot of multicenter trials in, in Europe and, and, and globally. I also sit on the task force, the ESC task force, that uh, will advise the European Commission on the new regulations on, on CE marking of stents. So a bit of a background there. What strikes me in reality, uh, and that's my clinician's perspective, is that CE marking can go very quick. And for CE marking, for those of you uh, you don't know, uh, for CE marking you need one notified body um, and going through the process, one competent authority and a product that more or less does what it says on the tin. You don't have to have efficiency or long-term safety data. It has to be reasonably safe and then you get CE mark. If you want a product, uh, to put a product into a well-controlled, randomized European trial, it's an investigational product, it's a different legislation covered in the same uh, text, but different legislation, and all of a sudden you have to ask each individual competent authority in each country the trial will be run. Now, I've always thought that's, that's not a very European approach, and, and this is the opportunity to ask Ian what his thoughts are uh, on this and whether there is a change on the horizon. Wouldn't it be the normal thing to do that, equal to CE marking, we have one competent authority that regulates a trial, and that then will be able to be launched in a very controlled way 
throughout Europe, rather than having to go to Italy, France, uh, the UK, Germany, everywhere. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a showstopper for many countries. Well, I, I think um, there's been a lot of discussion on this side of things in relation to the revision of the clinical trials uh, directive into a regulation for medicines. Uh, and indeed, you'll be aware of the voluntary harmonization, or you may or may not be aware of the voluntary harmonization procedure that had been put in place to try to coordinate across member states. And this actually is uh, going into legislation. I think the position has been agreed with the clinical trial regulation. So uh, uh, on the medicine side, there will be a much more coordinated with a single portal, single entry. Uh, okay, the individual countries will review, but a single position will come back, single questions if there are issues, and single position will come back. So it is being... Uh, coordinated on that side, and I think there's certainly been recognition that um, there have been difficulties in, uh, in, in on, on the medicine side in terms of trying to uh, people get multiple approvals in, in um, multiple countries. So there is movement there. Um, that the position has been agreed. I think it's still got to be finalised through the um, political processes, etc. But but there is movement. Mm -hmm.